We spend the majority of our time in these like incredibly soul-crushing jobs. There must be a way that my day job could teach me practices of care. Hello and welcome to Remember the Future, a podcast from art.coop where we invite you to remember the future by listening to the stories of artists and culture bears who are returning to practices as old as time to build community and care-centered workplaces where they are their own bosses, there are no landlords, and they decide how money flows. My name is Marina Lopez, and I'm your host. This podcast is the brainchild of art.coop. We're an emerging group of mothers and creatives, artists and care workers trying to create collaborative spaces where we as artists and culture bearers can socialize and dream together and learn in community with one another. And for us, we try and center the voices and experiences of queer and trans, Black, Indigenous, and POC creatives. Because for us, we really recognize that our work as artists and culture bearers deeply informs culture. So therefore, it has the power to really shift it. As artists, we're workers. So we really deserve equitable workspaces to be in where we can live our values, have work that is joyful for us, and pay the bills. So I'm going to chat with Art.coop's co-founders and my colleagues, Nati Linares, who is a cultural organizer, a beautiful visionary and weaver, and Caroline Woolard, who is an artist and also an incredible teacher and thinker. And we're going to chat about how artists can benefit from the solidarity economy. We're going to start out with Caroline. Hey, Caroline, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Caroline. I am a very tall, queer white lady, and I'm living in Berlin in Germany right now. I'm an artist and an organizer with art.coop. I'd love to start today's conversation by defining what the solidarity economy is. It's how we survive as artists. The solidarity economy is the way that we get our projects done if we're creative people, if we're all kinds of people. It's like, imagine the last time you made a creative project, whether it was like a meal or a film or whatever, probably you didn't have enough money to make the project. So you asked your friend for help, you borrowed some tools, you maybe got a little bit of money together from someone who loaned it to you at no interest. You know, they just gifted it to you or maybe they need it back at some point. Um, These kind of practices of like, making do, helping each other. This is so familiar to many people, especially if you're like queer, BIPOC, working class, and also if you're an artist. Maybe another way to say it is like a lot of people are really used to activism around resisting, like getting out on the streets, 
saying no to policies, to actions, to institutions that are doing harm. And the solidarity economy is about building the worlds that we want to live in, where we can have hope and love and joy and a sense of freedom together. That's beautiful. And I love those parallels, especially when we think about like artists as also economic developers, right? Because like we are not only contributing to the economy, but we can also be a part of defining what those economies look like. We know how to do these things because we're already doing them in our art practices, in our art communities. When did you start naming your practices as an artist and a person in community as solidarity economy practices? How am I going to survive as an artist? Oh, I'm going to keep doing these things. And it's important to me to name it because I had been suddenly like awakened that it's a political act to have a name that we can all connect to. And because I'm not just like helping another artist or helping my neighbor, I'm connecting this to a long lineage of Black liberation, of queers helping each other, of working class people helping each other. And also I'm connected to international movements that use this term and that have also had good wins, like they get paid training programs for cooperatives in other countries. They actually get loans that are non-extractive, that you don't have to pay back if you don't have a business that succeeds. So when we use a shared term, we can actually win together. We can see like, oh, all of a sudden you can be paid to learn how to be in a cooperative. You can actually get money for your dream project. All of this is now a lot bigger than just me, like getting by as an artist. Yeah, because there's infrastructure being set up because there's a shared understanding of like, what are the values that are the scaffolding of that infrastructure that build it? That's really cool. Totally. When I was in art school, I think the first day we were in a big auditorium and they said something like, only one of you will be a famous artist. The rest of you are not going to make it and you're going to have to have another career. So I think it's just so extreme, this like idea that the best thing that could happen to you is you'd be in the 1% and you would be rich and you'd be also alone and you'd be the only person who made it out of that room. I remember at some point I was applying for a lot of grants and I just stopped one day and was like, I'm about to spend an entire week trying to get money. What if I just took that time, like a whole week of work, and just help my friend make a project? We'll just actually have a project at the end of the week. So of course, we help each other all the time. I did it in a more like dedicated way, like the way I would focus on a grant that I probably wasn't going to get. And it was amazing. This maybe more committed sharing. And I think interdependence in the arts is like the only way to survive. I really believe that we're in this as artists and we know our value, that it has nothing to do with the dominant capitalist economy, that like we are in integrity with our own discipline, with our own ways of being with each other. But then on the other side, we have to pay rent. <laughs> and we're like... Uh, how am I going to do this when I know I'm not valued, my creative work is not valued in the dominant economy? 
them. And so I think trying to navigate that is what got me into this work, like thinking there must be a way to enjoy my day job. There must be a way that my day job could teach me practices of care. And we spend the majority of our time in these like incredibly soul-crushing, boring, pointless jobs. And I think for me, it was also this realization that if we are what we practice, and my practice is experiencing pointless tasks that I have to do that my boss tells me to do, and my experience of myself is like, I just start spacing out or like hiding in the bathroom or sneaking around and finding other ways to like check my email or do something. It's like, I don't want to become a person who just spaces out and hides and sneaks around. And that's what these pointless jobs were training me to do. So I think it was at some point realizing that the work that I did in groups and collectives could also be a way to create a livelihood, both with money and with other resources. And I was like, ah, I could actually be practicing a muscle of being present and being connected to my own body and feelings and be emotional in a workspace and bring my whole self. This is actually what I could practice every single day. And that's why I eventually quit a lot of jobs that weren't aligned and found work that really lets me heal and grieve and practice being whole with other people. Yes, I so appreciate that. And I feel like you and I have really been able to cultivate this culture internally in our work at art.coop where I feel really comfortable showing up with my full self because you also come in that same way. It's honestly one of the first times in my life where I've had this experience of being able to show up in my many selves and feel appreciated for the different ways that I see the world and experience the world and bringing that into this work. So yes, it is incredibly important to be able to have that in a workspace and in relationships in general. And now I'd love to turn to our other colleague at art.coop who is also a co-founding organizer my friend Nati Linares. She co-authored this report, Solidarity Not Charity, which was in a lot of ways the genesis for art.coop. Nati, hello and welcome. I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your relationship to the solidarity economy. Well, my name is Nati Linares, Natalia Linares. I go by she, her pronouns. I'm the daughter of a musician. I'm a daughter of immigrants. I'm a mother. I'm a creator of creators, I like to say. Creator for creators, I like to say. And I've been working with you all at art.coop for the last two years now. I'm a co-founding organizer and co-author of the Solidarity Not Charity Arts and Culture Grant Making in the Solidarity Economy Report for Grant Makers in the Arts. I'm very much at the intersection of solidarity economy network organizing 
and kind of bridging the gap with the arts and culture field. And I wore many hats in the music business throughout my 20s as a manager, a publicist, a music record label administrator, licensing contract administrator. You know, I experienced how much systems change is needed in the arts and culture field and solidarity economy organizing. How do we begin to connect those dots with artists and culture workers to support and lead this conversation around how we are never going to build a solidarity economy or build systems change if we don't recruit and organize and have artists lead that work as well and have those conversations. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Natia. I love that. And I'm wondering, can you share a moment or an experience, a memory that you have about a time when you were questioning our current economic system? I, I was kind of a rebel publicist at a certain point and cold pitched the head of Coachella and got two bands booked on Coachella as an independent manager, which is kind of crazy. Usually it's very a gatekeeper kind of boys club. And at the same time, the very same month that they played Coachella, uh, we all struggled to pay our rent. And at the time, my now husband, uh, who's an economist, said to me, how can it be that you can't afford dinner right now? You have your bands on NPR and MTV and playing Coachella and you can't, I have to buy you dinner right now. Why is that? <laughs> You're like, wow, people think that these artists are doing so well, but it really is, you know, a smoke and mirrors game and this kind of winners take all. And so for me, that was very pivotal of like, wow, these bands are playing the quote unquote top festival in the United States and still cannot cover their needs. And that's actually really wrong. And we need to talk about it more. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what that means. You can talk about this in all the different mediums of arts and culture, whether you're talking to a gallerist and a visual artist, a dancer, um, a TikTok maker, right? We're hearing a podcaster, we're hearing stories every day and just how consolidated and gatekeepery these industries are. We have become detached from a more ancient idea of what culture work was in the places that we lived, right? You know, what does it look like back in the community level to support and cultivate culture bearers and artists um, and not just playing that game of how do I get my music on Spotify? And I think that's really powerful and liberating to think about, wow, this has only been happening in the last 50 to 100 years. Um, there isn't a reason why a band cannot get public funding and be voted on by their community to be supported, let's say. That's one small example. So how can we push our imaginations around what's possible based in these legacies that we know are rooted in the cooperative and solidarity economy? I feel like legacy and honoring and uplifting those legacies that this work is really built upon. For me, when I first read the report was really impactful because it situated this current movement in a long history. And it connected me to um, many people and many efforts to organize and all of that labor that's been a part of that. What role has legacy and ancestry played in your life as a culture bearer and a cultural organizer? 
Well, my father, who was a musician in the late 60s, early 70s in New York City, and at a certain point in the 80s, that starving artist was not able to support us as a family. And so I think about my mom and dad and their kind of squandered artist dreams and how their spirits could have unfolded more richly and deeply had they pursued their theatrical and musical passion instead of the practicality of a career, quote unquote. But what excites me most about Solidarity Economy is also thinking about those moments in arts and culture when you have seen artists practice mutual aid, practice cooperation, and maybe it was not attached to any sort of movement, right? A living monument to what we now call Solidarity Economy, but maybe didn't label itself as that movement but was that and showed us a way. And so I think as we did this report, uh, Solidarity Not Charity, we tried to just remember those stories. Or we think of Frida Kahlo, you know, as a open communist socialist fighting for these movements as an artist, creating works to fund those movements. So I think it's important to remember that these legacies are very much connected to a history. Not that long ago in the last century, when arts and culture was inextricably linked to radical economic visions of the future. And artists were linked to those movements. And so I think we're getting back to that. I see more and more artists living that. You know, they're building democratic loan funds. They're parts of worker cooperatives and artist cooperatives. They're building more public funding more public financing. I'm hopeful and optimistic. As long as we keep that in mind and remember that, you know, this stuff is still in process. You're not an imposter. We need you. And so we hope to create spaces where artists can feel supported as they're unlearning and as they're learning. And I certainly am on that journey myself. Thank you so much to my colleagues, Nati and Caroline, for sharing their stories with me today and for their incredible mentorship and friendship. Thank you so much for joining us for Remember the Future. Special thanks to Yerba Buena Center for the Arts for their generous support of this podcast. And thanks to Creative Study for their ongoing partnership. Remember the Future is co-produced by Meerkat Media Cooperative, Alita Cooper, and Art.coop. It's edited by Justin Maxson and Alita Cooper, with visual design by Emma Werowinski, and theme music by Andile Blessing Maguasa and Siswe Lancelot Mabelu. The show's executive producers are Eric Phillips-Horst and me, Marina Lopez. Additional thanks to our consulting editor, Caroline Woolard, and to my colleagues at Art.coop, Nati Linares, and Shruti Sariana Ryanen. You can hear more episodes of Remember the Future anywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed what you heard, we invite you to rate, subscribe, and review. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore artcoop. You can also help sustain this podcast by visiting our website, art.coop, and clicking on support to make a donation. I'm your host, Marina Lopez, 
And this has been Remember the Future. <laughs>